and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Well, Kobus, today we're going to talk about ambassadors, and it's interesting because when it comes to China-Africa relations, we often don't hear from ambassadors. Typically, it's the foreign ministers, the defense ministers, and most notably the heads of state. And so, I thought it was interesting, Kobus, when you brought to my attention three different ambassadors, and we posted these on our Facebook pages from the United States, Europe, and uh, and the and Africa itself. Who are all commenting on Sino-African relations? So first, we're going to talk about、uh, U.S. Ambassador to Ghana, Jean Kretz. Then we're going to dissect the comments of retired German Ambassador Volker Seitz,、uh, who was very critical of the Chinese in Africa, and finally get a more positive perspective from South African Ambassador to China, your ambassador, in fact, Dr. Becky Langa. So, Kobus, let's go right into、uh, Gene Kretz. He was speaking with Bloomberg's Mark Crumpton on the air the other day, and it seemed like he was back in the U.S. And、uh, Crumpton kind of went right to it and said, "What's the impact of China's growing presence in Ghana?" Let's take a listen. Mr. Ambassador, what is the relationship between China and Ghana? How has that relationship affected your ability as the top American diplomat there to convince local officials that the U.S. could be a ready and willing business partner?、Uh, to be honest,、uh, it's had very little、uh, impact. There have been some projects. Uh, that the the Chinese have been able to uh, acquire uh, in Ghana,、uh, but it's clear to me、uh, in my、uh, 18 months in Ghana that again it's the American brand、uh, that people want, and we've been working very hard、uh, from our embassy and our mission、uh, to try to convince、uh, American companies that this is the time to come to Ghana, and that、uh, the the innovation, the quality of American goods, the ethical practices that we have, and the corporate social responsibility that we practice make us. A very, very uh, competitive uh, uh, country when it comes to these goods, and that's in addition to the、uh, to the normal sympathetic、uh, ties that exist between Ghana and the United States、yeah. and other countries in uh, uh, Africa and the United States. Okay, Kobus. What caught my eye when, or caught my ear when,、uh, when listening to Ambassador Kretz's comments was he really in his list there went right for the jugular of all of the sensitive issues when it comes to Chinese products in in, in Africa. So he said、uh, innovation, quality, ethical practices, and CSR. Boy, if there's nothing else that really lists all the shortcomings of of China's brand image in Africa, that seems to be it. Do you think it's going to be effective? Maybe I mean that those you know those points seem to me more to、uh, to appeal more to an American market or American audience actually.、Um, what the, the big glaring issue that he you know mentioned, but you know which I think is is actually more、uh, instrumental in this case is the fact that the American co- companies aren't there yet. You know, kind of he keeps talking about having to convince American companies to to kind of end to、uh, invest in Ghana, and the fact that the American companies aren't haven't been haven't been invested in Ghana already, I think that counts for a lot as well. Trying to convince American companies, I mean, I that that really does says it all because in some ways it really reflects the differences between the U.S. system and the Chinese system. There is no convincing of the state-owned enterprises in China. They are part of a much bigger machine that, when the political leadership determines. That it is in their interest to invest. Boy, everybody lines up and they go. Whereas in the United States, you know, President Obama doesn't have the opportunity to force General Electric or Coca-Cola to invest, even though、uh, it may be in their best interest. I'm wondering when you look at Ghana in particular, and we've talked a lot about China-Ghana relations.
relations over the past few few years, in fact. Uh, in particular, China's influence there seems to be on the rise, and yet the ambassador says it hasn't gotten in their way. I'm kind of skeptical of what of the ambassador on that front, in part because the three billion dollars that the Chinese are loaning to Ghana and building out their foreign ministry, building out their defense ministry in Accra, it just seems like how can they not get in the way of the Americans? I was also wondering whether it might be might have to do with the fact that the Ghan, the Ghanaians are still busy deciding exactly how to manage the the oil that they recently found. Um, you know, kind of I I remember reading. That uh, Norway, for example, um, sent a, an advisory group to Ghana to to advise them about how to manage uh, oil oil reserves for greater growth. So I wonder if it's a situation that that oil the, those oil kind of um, blocks haven't really been assigned yet, and for that reason, you know, kind of the big American companies that haven't don't really feel themselves stymied yet. It might be, but again, he, interestingly enough, didn't really talk about oil that much. And that might in part be because oil is really not at the top of the priority for the Americans, given the oil boom that's happening in the United States. What I find so interesting from the time that I lived in Africa, and and even here in Vietnam, I see, American companies just aren't as visible in these parts of the world. And when I mean these parts of the world, it's these emerging markets, in particular, kind of low-end and low-income emerging markets, where the Chinese, Indians, and Brazilians seem to be far more prominent. I suppose, but I mean, you know, the the fact that that American that America is producing its own oil doesn't necessarily mean that American companies won't be interested in in exploring oil elsewhere. I mean, they don't necessarily need to sell it to America. Um, you know, kind of American oil companies might just be, you know kind of be participating in the global oil market like the other big companies. It's a fair point. That's actually a very very fair point, and uh, and certainly American oil companies have been active, you know, in Russia and in much more volatile places than Ghana. Uh, But again, you know, it's the ambassador's job to be a cheerleader. So it's not surprising that he gets on American television and really kind of talks it up. Uh, It's my job to be a little more cynical of what he's saying. And and I find it hard to believe again. I'm I'm just I I find it very, very hard to believe that he says that the Chinese aren't getting into uh, into the Americans way. And I thought it was kind of unusual. If you listen to the entire five minute interview, he goes on and on and on about the American brand. And that was very interesting. And this is right up your alley here in terms of the the preeminence of American soft power in Africa. And despite all the efforts that the Chinese have done over the past, say, five to 10 years to change their image, it doesn't look like it's done anything. At the same time, the Americans have been deploying uh, military bases all across the continent. They've been engaged in hostile conflicts. They, you know, they have not renewed the AGOA, the America, the African Growth and Opportunity Act. And yet, when you talk to public opinion surveys and, and pollsters, they'll all tell you that the Americans rank higher. So in some ways, he might be right on the brand front. I suppose. I mean, one, one thing that really frustrates me with these kind of these kind of polls is that it's very difficult um, for the pollsters to, to make it uh, – Distinction between whether a country is simply popular um, and whether they're really seen as a as a major player in in the local economy, because America is popular, but America is mostly popular because of things like the power of Hollywood. So I don't know whether that necessarily means that that Ghanaians feel that America that American companies are instrumental in the Ghanaian economy. Um, that that's a, that's a difficult distinction. I mean, the other issue, of course, is that is that um, Chinese investment frequently comes with already packaged. 
with financing. Um, and he made the point that Ghana is moving away from sovereign debt um, and they increasingly looking for for debt backed by private institutions. And and he he mentioned the American um, Export Import Bank and then OPEC, which is the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. Basically, as I understand it, the US US government's development fi- um, finance institution. So, um, do do you foresee that these that OPEC and the American Exxon Bank, you know, are they actually going to take a kind of a Chinese approach and you know and help American companies through to bring a package of financing and kind of uh, project proposals to the Ghanaian government or doesn't simply doesn't work that way? It doesn't work that way. I mean, the Exim Bank is certainly involved in promoting American products overseas, but I don't think they're going to be able to package up in, in with such a neat bundle the way the Chinese can package up their financing, their infrastructure, all of the different pieces of the Chinese machinery that come together in the form of, I don't want to call it an aid package or whatever, a development package, a commercial package, because it's really not clear as to what it is. I mean, we've talked about Sikomin's deal. Uh, what is that? That's got infrastructure. It's got mining in it. It's got you know some development funds in it. It's everything. And I don't think the Americans have a political system that, that, that can do that, even if they wanted to be able to do it. Uh, so, so I think that's, that's very interesting. One of the, the final points on the American side is that President Obama has come under intense criticism over the past year for his lack of attention to Africa. And if you recall, he's made two very high-profile visits to the continent, said he would not forget about the continent. He was in Senegal. He was in Ghana. And yet, he, a lot of people say he's been distracted by now what's going on in Russia, by the Middle East, uh, even by, to some extent, by his relationship with China. Uh, but Africa has lagged. So, you know, the ambassador has a very difficult task representing President Obama when, in fact, I think there's a very legitimate case to say that he has overlooked the continent and American policy is, has nowhere near the level of attention that it gets in China. Final thoughts on U.S., China, Africa. Yeah, I can't help but think that it looks a little bit like the the Obama administration lacks lacks vision on Africa, or, or simply you know kind of lacks a clear idea of what they'd like to do there, except for setting up military bases. Um, they don't seem to really see opportunities to to grow grow uh, American companies there, and you know that might be granted. I mean that might simply be it, it, you know American companies might simply not be right for that environment. Who knows? But uh, yeah, you know kind of it doesn't there, there is isn't a lot of kind of burning inspiration happening no. there, at least as seen from our perspective. It's certainly in inside the Beltway in Washington, the defense establishment and the aid establishment drive policy in Africa. That's my, my two cents on that. So let's take a, a, a more skeptical point of view. And we're going to talk to, we're going to hear from, well, just a quote uh, from Volker Seitz, who's a former ambassador to the German Foreign Office. Now, Volker Seitz has been, his way, been around the German Foreign Office for a very, very long time. He spent 17 years in the German diplomatic service. Uh, He was serving in Brussels, in Japan, Armenia, and seven different countries in Africa. So he definitely should know what he's talking about. Now, earlier in March, on March 12th, on the uh, website Euractiv, that's uh, E-U-R-A-C-T-I-V.com, it's not an obvious spelling, Uh, he gave an interview. And in that interview, he spoke about uh, China relations. So let me read the quote, Kobus, and then we'll get your, your take on it. Uh, Ambassador 
Volker Site says more and more Africans are worried about China's activities. In a recent Financial Times report, the head of Nigeria's central bank, Lamidu Sanusi, accused Peking of colonial policy. China is still mistakenly considered a developing country, Sanusi said, pointing out that African countries trust it more than the West, even though there has long been no reason for this. The value of the partnership with China is often doubtful, he said. China's infrastructure projects in Africa are carried out by Chinese workers and not local labor forces. As a result, no new jobs are created for Africans. So I don't even know where to begin with this, but I'm going to let you have the first crack at it. Yeah, this is, <laughs> I mean, you know, in the first place, no new jobs are being created. I, I think that's just false. You know, um, the issue, the issue of of whether Chinese workers do all the work. I think we've we've had we've been back and forth over that many many times. You know, generally, uh, more and more Chinese companies tend to employ lots of locals, especially if the skills are there. Um, it just yeah, this this just frustrated me on lots of different levels. I thought it was. Just- just downright boneheaded. And uh, let me start with the fact that if this is a guy who's been in as many African countries and spent as much time over there and is being interviewed by a website as some presumable expert on the place, the fact that his source on this is a, quote, recent Financial Times report, which you and I both know is not recent, uh, and it wasn't a report, it was an op-ed, so he didn't even read it that well, uh, quoting Lamido Sanusi, uh, and that's the basis of his information, is just amateur. I mean, it's just nothing more than amateur. And in so many ways, this represents the common thinking of what I saw in Paris, in London, and, and among many, many Europeans who have such a superficial view of the Chinese in Africa. And they read one story, and that's the basis of his comments. I mean, this guy had no business commenting on this subject if he only had read one Financial Times op-ed. And the second thing I think it's funny is that he said Peking, which, you know, if anybody knows anything yeah. about modern China, and this guy was based in Japan, supposedly, uh, Peking is, is, is a pretty dated reference for the capital of, Be- uh, capital of China, known as Beijing. Uh, I won't yeah, hold him up on in, that, Interestingly, the, the Japanese still say Peking. Um, for some reason, I don't know, it's some, some katakana situation, I'm not sure why. Yeah, okay, so I'll cut him slack on that, and the French call call it Pékin. Okay, so fair enough, we'll strike that from the record. What I will not strike from the record is the fact that he used these kind of overly simplistic, uh, I mean, really just borderline kind of junior high school kind of approach on it. The value of the partnership with China is often doubtful. China's infrastructure projects in, in Africa are carried out by Chinese workers. I mean... You know, and again, I'm not saying this in defense of the Chinese because you and I have spoken, you know, ad nauseum on the problems the Chinese have. I'm speaking out on just how stupid this guy sounds. Yeah, what was very funny for me is this kind of finger wagging approach that he takes. You know, like he keeps saying that Africans must become competent enough to solve their own crises, um, and they, you know, they need skills in order to to deal with their own problems, and then. You know, kind of one of the reasons why those skills are so low on the ground obviously has a lot to do with European colonialism and then post post colonial aid 
structure. So, I mean, it's pretty rich from a European, actually. No, and, and let's not forget, oftentimes when we talk about European colonialism in Africa, we overlook the Germans. And the Germans, you know, prior to World War I, uh, did have colonies in Africa. Uh, so they do have a colonial legacy there. Listen, we're not going to hold that against them today because today's Germany is nothing related to the past. What I do think is interesting is that he's promoting a very, very conventional view of, you know, Europe, or in this case, Germany's interaction. So later, um, one of the questioners says, you know, the German government wants to develop a new Africa strategy this year. What are the core requirements? And here he goes to list the expansion of economic relations. Okay. But here we get into the difference between the Chinese and, uh, and, and, and Europeans and the Americans. Rule of law and government leadership, environmental protection, and education. So now those are all very, very important, but they do emphasize these more kind of obtuse types of, 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 of objectives here, as opposed to what the Chinese are doing, which is, I'm going to build you a road, I'm going to build a factory, I'm going to build a hospital, we're going to build infrastructure, things that are much more tangible. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. You know, kind of, he doesn't seem very particularly interested in infrastructure development, obviously. Um, and, you know, I think many African leaders would, would say that a lack of infrastructure, particularly road infrastructure, is one of the main reasons why Africa finds it so difficult to, to solve its problems. Um, one thing that I found very interesting is that he, he takes quite a kind of a tough line. And at some stage he says um, that... Europe must be against the appeasement of dictators or, you know, or um, corrupt governments and saying uh, that he's against um, understanding for the supposed African particularities and, senses, um, and sensitivities, which I found very interesting. He also calls for a more critical kind of uh, policy towards Africa, like, you know, the, the, the greater kind of, uh, cons I suppose, constructive criticism of, of African problems, you know, from Europe. And it's like, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what Africans don't want. <laughs> no, there's that Europe, you know. <laughs> and, no, and and you know, to your point about asshole dictators, there's the you know. Let's not forget that Germany remains in the top ten of the world's leading arms exporting countries, and a lot of those weapons do find their way into places like Africa. So it's just kind of to me a little bit ironic that there isn't a little bit more self reflection coming out of a, a, a high profile German ambassador about both the. Uh, the shortcomings of, of Western aid and Western foreign policy in Africa, and at the same time, again, a lack, a glaring lack of sophistication in terms of understanding the Chinese role. And, and it's okay that he doesn't know about this. That may be fine. But then he shouldn't be answering questions about it in the public. I mean, that's, you know... Okay, let's get a different perspective. In, in Cobus, we're going to, you know, go to your representative in Beijing, uh, Dr. Becky Langa. He was recently on uh, a China Central television show, CCTV, called Voices and Votes during the recent National People's Congress, and that's the rubber stamp parliament in Beijing. Uh, and very popular CCTV host Yang Rei really did not mince words here, and he goes right for one of the most sensitive areas in Sino-African relations, Beijing's no-strings-attached non-interference policy in Africa. Let's take a listen. What do you think of the controversial uh, Chinese policy of non-intervention in Africa? Because we have insisted that our economic assistance and investment in the African continent should not uh, be done with any strings. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, Africa... African uh, countries welcome the policy that China has adopted of uh, non-interference in internal affairs of uh, countries. We believe that this is um, 
a positive way. China has consistently uh, called for peaceful resolution of uh, uh, conflicts uh, through negotiated uh, settlements. And China has uh, consistently also played a very constructive uh, uh, role in uh, promoting uh, uh, African uh, uh, development. China believes that uh, African uh, countries, African leadership, uh, have got the capacity uh, to solve their own problems without intervention from, from outside. Africans can solve their own problems without intervention from the outside world. That is your representative, Kobis, Dr. Becky Langa. What were your thoughts on his uh, on his comments? Well, I wasn't surprised that he praises the non-intervention policy. I mean, in the first place, it's in the first place, there's no skin off his nose. You know, kind of no African government is going to be calling for more intervention. Um, and you know, I, I think. Obviously, South Africa is also speaking from its position as a BRICS member and as a as a, a big uh, China ally in Africa. So I, I wasn't surprised by it. Um, what was interesting for me actually is this weird echo between him and Volker Seitz's, uh you know, views that you know that that Africa should solve its own problems. Only they're coming from very different different positions to the same to the same place. Yeah, I you know, okay, to your point, one is you, you, it's not surprising. He's on Chinese state television supporting, you know, Chinese policy. Duh. That's going to happen. He's not going to sit there on CCTV and say, "Well, you know what? We disagree with Chinese foreign policy. We disagree with this long-held doctrine." You know, so you're right. That's not surprising. But I actually at the same time, I believe him. Um, I actually believe the fact that he thinks the non-interference policy is a good thing, in part because if you hear from a lot of African leaders of all stripes, they like the fact that they don't, they aren't dictated to and aren't condescended to in so many ways that the West has done for so long. That said, I do kind of ring the BS bell a little bit here when it says, you know, uh, Africans can solve their own problems. Can Africans, can the Central African Republic solve its problems? I mean, you know, at the same time, people are pleading for the international community. Rwanda couldn't have solved its own problems. I mean, the list of problems from Somalia now to South Sudan uh, across the continent that may be beyond the abilities, the resources of the the continent to do it. And when I say abilities, I mean the fact that some of these problems are international in nature, like the oil in South Sudan. So I just want to clarify that. So I don't know, do you, that kind of pan-African nationalism, that hint of it, does that, does that resonate with you? No. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, kind of, I mean, the, the alternative to to this idea that Africa can't solve its own problems is that they can, they just simply choose not to. Ah, which, well, you know, so, so, it's, so it's difficult to, to decide which of those is more correct and which of those is more monstrous, you know. Um, I mean, so I think it's a, frankly this kind of bit of a toxic mix of the two. Certain problems can't really be solved because of logistics. So Central African Republic is very difficult to solve without without outside help. Other problems are allowed to sit around and fester, like the Zimbabwe situation, which essentially, keep in mind that Zimbabwe is is essentially pulling down the entire subcontinent. Um, and, it, you know, a, a significant percentage of Zimbabweans are living outside of Zimbabwe, most of them in South Africa. So it's a, it's a regional crisis. It's not only one country going crazy. Um, I mean, the other issue, of course, is that 
you know, non-interventionism, the way that African leaders frequently frequently discuss it, is as if what is really at stake here is regime change. Um, you know that that Africa, that China isn't isn't going to be uh, invading you know, some African country and, and uh, you know, kind of an, and taking over the presidential palace. But of course, what, what also is involved here is, is um, pressure for better governance and for uh, more transparency and, uh, and an ending of corruption. And the fact that China isn't calling for, for better governance or, you know, or, or linking loans to, to at least some kind of proof that, that the loans haven't been kind of used in corruption, that is a bit more, you know, I, I find it more, I find it harder to applaud, you know, particularly in, in in the case of South Africa, where recently there's this now very strong allegations that uh, that the South African president spent a certain amount of quite a lot of taxpayers' money on improving his own house. Yeah. Um, so you know that doesn't. No, it's not great. I actually think yeah. it's even more cynical than the way you're presenting it. And I'll take you one step further: that the Chinese look at the corruption as just the cost of doing business. So you know, in the case of the DRC. You know, in the for a deal like the Sickle Mines deal, which started at nine billion, then ended up at three billion. The rumors, and these are all rumors because it's impossible to confirm, is that Joseph Kabila pocketed up to three hundred million dollars in payments from the Chinese out of that deal. And I think for them, it's the opposite of them trying to push for transparency and accountability. They're signing the checks because that's what facilitates the deal. It's pragmatism at the end of the day. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think the Chinese oftentimes for their non-interference policy are so despised is because at least they're not even making an effort. There's no fig leaf. The flip side, though, should be said that the U.S. the and the Europeans who have been funneling billions of dollars in aid, uh, oftentimes that aid is not measured, not accounted for, and there's a, an enormous amount of corruption that's there as well. Uh, but, you know, somehow under the guise of aid, it's considered okay. And, you know, and that to me is problematic as well. So, um, so three ambassadors. Kobus, final, a final question for you on this. You know, if you've spent time in Africa talking to the diplomatic community and talking with people in the aid community, it's interesting that the Westerners kind of fall down on the lines of what we heard tonight, that the Westerners tend to be overly skeptical and simplistic in their judgment. And at the same time, sometimes Africans and Chinese tend to be overly optimistic. Do you find that in in your own research and day-to-day activities when you deal with, you know, Americans and Europeans and Chinese and Africans? Um, I, to a certain extent, although I have to immediately hedge that by saying that I I haven't done a lot of research on the aid community because I I um, or no research actually because I focus on media. Um, so you know that the, it's not really a group of people I've I am in conversation with very frequently. Um, my feeling is that it frequently breaks down in, in a weirdly. So, like, almost a hidden parallel between the two ways of thinking um, in the sense that, how can I say that? Mm, I'm speaking myself into into a corner. Um, You know, kind of, I think the... The one issue is, you know, there, there there are certain kind of illusions to both sides about about the role of leaders. Um, you know, in the, to the Western side, that the West has some kind of power to improve Africa's leaders, and to the other side, that Africa's leaders are are 
very, very competent and very honest and simply have been held back by X, <laughs> insert, insert something in that space. Um, you know, kind of, and both of those tend to contain, both of those ways of thinking tend to con- contain blind spots. The main one is that Africa frequently has very bad leaders. Um, and why that is actually happening and why those bad leaders end up in those positions, that is a really difficult thing to question to answer and a very difficult problem to solve. Um, And I think, you know, to a certain extent, both of those ways of thinking, both the kind of utopian idea that China is going to infrastructure our way to prosperity um, and that you know, kind of America or Europe is going to reform or pressure governance, pressure for better governance or reform the government in some kind of way. Both of those reveal a kind of inability to deal with this very, very basic fact that Africa frequently has really bad leaders and we don't know what to do about that. Wow, that was, that's an amazing point. And I think that's an excellent place we can end. I mean, that's probably the smartest point of our entire discussion tonight. So, uh, you know, awesome. Well, listen, uh, that was, uh, we'd like to hear what you think. Uh, Facebook is the best way to get in touch with us. Facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Over 163,000 people from all over the world are participating, following the page, joining in the discussion. Uh, We'd love to have your voice. What do you think of what we've talked about tonight? Do you agree with some of the incredibly insightful points that Cobus is brought up, uh, or do you? In what? Where do you come down on ambas- the various ambassadors' comments from uh, from from the U.S. in Ghana to Kreitz in Germany, as well as uh, Dr. Becky Langa in Beijing? We'd love to hear from you. That is uh, the best way to do it is on Facebook. Kobus, if people want to stay in touch with you elsewhere, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? I'm also on Twitter at Stadnesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well. I'm at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. We're also on Google+. Look for the China Africa Project or just my name, Eric Olander, on Google+. All of our podcasts are listed there. And uh, last week we mentioned the fact that uh, we're now passing 50,000 downloads a month for the show. And after a little bit of digging, Cobus has actually figured out why we've experienced uh, a sudden surge in popularity of the show. And it's because we're very grateful to whoever the editors are at the iTunes homepage in South Africa, who kindly put us right there next to TED Talks in the New York Times. So we're thrilled to have all of our new listeners joining us from South Africa and Southern Africa uh, who found us through iTunes. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, iTunes is the best way. Just search for us, China Africa Project. Uh, and also do us a favor if we really, really appreciate it if you could leave a comment on iTunes. Good, bad, or ugly, that's okay. But the more comments, it does help us rise in iTunes so that other editors of iTunes pages around the world can put us on their front page as well. So uh, we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>